Welcome back, dear listeners, to this new episode of the Sparker podcast. In this episode, it is my pleasure to talk to Professor Adam Alter. Adam is a professor for marketing at the Stern School of Business at New York University and author of multiple insightful books, such as Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked, or his latest work, Anatomy of a Breakthrough, How to Get Unstuck When It Matters Most. And on September 7th, he will be one of the keynote speakers at the International Retail Summit by the Gottlieb Duttweiler Institute in Zurich. Check them out if you are interested in visionary trends, important management insights, and connecting with thought leaders in retail. In this conversation, Adam and myself dive deep into a situation we all experience, be it as leaders in business or in our personal lives. Every one of us gets stuck every once in a while, in a job or career, in a relationship, or in our creative pursuits. As you all know, it is an unpleasant, frustrating place to be in. Luckily, Adam has explored and done extensive research about this experience of being stuck and has uncovered valuable insights and tactics to get unstuck again and be successful in the transitions we want to make. We elaborated on the state of being stuck, what its origins can be and how to proactively avoid it. We also discussed concrete tactics and mindsets to get ahead, create breakthroughs and get unstuck. Also, we talked about how we as leaders, parents or otherwise caring human beings can be helpful to others who are in this unpleasant situation. I'm convinced that there's a lot for you to take away from this conversation. So please enjoy this episode of the Sparker podcast with none other than Adam Alter. All right. Welcome, Adam. It's my pleasure to talk to you and record this podcast together about um, your book and the phenomena of uh, being stuck and getting unstuck again. So I'm sure this will be interesting. Thanks so much for having me, Christian. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks. Um, I would say let's start with um, um, wrapping our head around the, the phenomenon of being stuck um, how does it feel like? How do you identify it so that we all have a, a good understanding of what we mean in the following conversation when we talk about being stuck or getting unstuck? Can you help us with um, a first answer in this regard? How does being stuck feel or how do you identify it? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I've, I've asked this question of thousands and thousands of people around the world. And the way I think of stuckness is that it's it's an experience that goes on for quite a long time. So every day, we experience minor frustrations. Maybe we procrastinate a little bit, or maybe we're, we're struggling with something that takes us a few minutes to figure out. Being stuck, the kind that I'm interested in, is, is a, a protracted experience. It's long-term. It lasts for a while. It can be weeks. It can be months. It can be years. It can be decades, and it can even be an entire lifetime. And when I ask people how it feels, I explain what I think being stuck is, that it's this extended period they tell me a number of things. They tell me that they feel very isolated, which is interesting because almost everyone feels stuck in some respect. So to hear that they feel isolated doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Because they're in very good company. There are 
you know, billions of other human beings in the world who are going through something quite similar. But they say they feel isolated, they feel lonely, they feel quite anxious. It's an aversive experience. It doesn't feel good. Some of them feel fear because the kind of stuckness they're experiencing might be, for example, financial and other people are relying on them and they're not sure how to fix the situation. Uh, so it, it depends a little bit on on what uh, what the nature of the stuckness is that that they tell me about, but almost always the the feelings that accompany being stuck are negative. And, and I think the best way I can explain this is I was speaking to a friend of mine who whose father was a math professor. And so his father spent decades, year after year after year, trying to solve the same math puzzle. Now, he didn't make a lot of progress. So for 30 years, he didn't make any meaningful, objective, measurable progress. But every day he woke up and he was happy. He enjoyed doing it. It was exactly what he wanted to be doing. So from the outside, it looked objectively like he was not moving. Therefore, perhaps by definition, he was stuck. But because he was happy, he wasn't stuck. So to be stuck, you need to be both not making progress, but also feeling that as a negative state. All right. Interesting. Um, would you say that being stuck is um, something different than uh, feeling depressed or anxious for a long time? Or is this kind of, is it um, related to each other? Or is it like, is there somewhere a clear distinction between falling into a depression or something like that? Or Or is it something very similar? Yeah, I think there's a lot of overlap. I mean, you can feel depressed and anxious for a long period of time, but that can have lots of different causes. Some of them could be that you feel stuck. You know, you could feel financially stuck or stuck in a relationship or stuck in a job or struggling with some creative pursuit that you can't make progress on. And then you'll feel bad and you might feel depressed and you might feel anxious. And so there they are. They, they perfectly overlap. But I, I think sometimes being anxious or being depressed can be a clinical state, could be just about the, the chemicals inside your body, or it could be a response to a particular trauma or a particular situation that's not really about stuckness. So I think usually in, in, in the way I look at stuckness, I think those emotional responses tend to be consequences of stuckness. So once we feel stuck, we tend to feel negative, but certainly they can coexist for sure. Okay, I understand. Um, I think it's interesting that you already mentioned the different natures of um, stuckness. Is that even a word? I'm not a native English speaker, so I wonder, stuckness, is that okay to say? <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. I wasn't sure either, to be honest. It's not a word mm -hmm. that you hear very often, but I didn't know yeah. how best to describe it. So I've just used this term. It's sort of, it's a neologism. Right. It's a kind of coined new word. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's go with it. Um, so um, what what are like typical... Um, origin stories uh, of stuckness. I mean, you mentioned already it could be something could be financial or it could be you're working on a problem for a long, long time and you don't make progress um, from uh, doing my preparations for this conversation. There are different elements that came up. Um, you also mentioned, for example, the plateau effect or just in general, if, when there's a long process, feeling stuck can happen uh, very often or is a very typical thing that happens or if you have information overloads and even success can maybe get you stuck in a way so or comfort so could you please maybe give us some more examples of the different reasons typical reasons or origin stories of being stuck 
Yeah, it's an excellent question. I, I think there are two kinds of, of forces that cause us to be stuck, internal and external forces. The external forces are, are situations around us that change. Life is always changing. You know, our situations change, our the amount of money we're earning changes, our health changes, the number of children we have, our relationships, the jobs we have. When any of those factors change, we we often find ourselves stuck because you have to be nimble and to to switch things in your life to fit that new reality. And so that's often where stuckness comes from. There's a, a very, very interesting writer um, named Bruce Feiler, who wrote a book called Life is in the Transitions. That's its English title. And um, he talks about this phenomenon. He calls them life quakes. It's like an earthquake for your life. And he says that every few years, every roughly five to 10 years, we experience on average a life quake. And a life quake is a huge life-changing event. And they often lead us to get stuck. And they are things like a, a death in the family, a divorce. They can be good things too. They could be the birth of a child, or they could be a new job that involves a big promotion. But they're such big shocks to our life that the things that used to work for us, the patterns we were in, the habits, whatever was was moving us forward, stops moving us forward. And so often in those situations, we feel stuck. And that's a response usually to something external. But there are also internal factors that lead us to be stuck. And one of them you just mentioned, the plateau effect is a big one. So the plateau effect is, is this really interesting phenomenon that suggests that it doesn't matter what domain you're in, whether you're training to become fit at the gym or whether you're learning a new language or whether you're learning some other new skill or whether you're a creative and you've been using the same approach to generating ideas, when you do the same thing over and over and over again, eventually you hit a plateau. So even though this approach that you were using was working very well for you and it was leading to improvements and gains, it stops doing that at a certain point. That is almost inevitable. And what humans do is they keep exploiting the same approach as long as they can. So we usually keep doing what seems to be working until it stops working. The moment it stops working, when we hit that plateau, that is a moment of stuckness for us. And that's not caused by some external force. It's either the body adapting to what you're doing, so the same muscles just don't respond the same way, or it's that your your ability to learn using a particular technique just declines and degrades over time, and so demands new approaches. So you've got to maybe change the way you're learning the language or whatever else you're learning. Um, so, so those are those are the examples of the two kinds. These life life quakes are these external forces, but then also within us, sometimes our motivation wanes or whatever was working just stops working for us. All right. And from your experience, from all the surveys you've done, um, how would you assess the um, the difficulty level, so to speak, of finding out what the real true source? Of, of this stuckness is. I mean, maybe you think it's external, but actually, if you're honest with yourself, it's internal. So um, a method that I like to use um, with myself and when coaching is this very simple five why method, starting with the first reason that comes to your mind uh, that you think why something happens or why something is the case, and then ask why again and again, and then drill deeper. So hopefully to find the real source or the real essence. Um, what have you learned about finding out like the, the real source um, of the problem? Because to me, that sounds like a very interesting or important starting point to then getting unstuck in the next step. I love that approach. I love the five why approach. And I love that approach for, for drilling deeper and, and not being satisfied with earlier responses and, and further interrogating them so you get deeper. And I think about 
what it's like to spend time with with children, with my children in particular, it's like that. Everything is is five whys or 10 whys or 100 whys, to be honest. Nothing is ever satisfying and no response ever goes deep enough. And I think adults lose that curiosity at a certain point. So I think one of the big issues when you say what's the real source of your being stuck or your stuckness, adults will stop at the first why. They'll say, I feel bad. Why do I feel bad? Oh, I just, I just feel uncomfortable. And they'll stop there. They don't really interrogate it deeply. But I think a child would never leave things at that level. They would ask 10 more questions to get further and further in. So I think training people to just ask more questions, to be more curious, to be more experimental, to challenge orthodoxy, what they think of as just the, the done thing, the way the world works, is a really good first step in helping them get unstuck. Because as you say, if you don't know why you're stuck or the origin of your stuckness, it's very hard to know where to, to apply effort and energy to getting unstuck. So so I think that's that's one really good approach, this ask ask why over and over and over again and, and be curious. Uh, I think people, in my experience at least, are fairly fairly good at identifying why they're stuck. It's There are a lot of psychological problems where it's a real mystery. And I think generally being stuck is not one of them, that if you if you ask a couple of the right questions, you can usually get pretty quickly to why you feel the way you feel. Um, and so there are lots of challenges with being stuck, but I think most of the time, it's such a strong visceral experience. It feels so bad for, for people that they they can usually quite quickly say, I think this is what's going on. And the truth about it is it doesn't actually matter if they're 100% right. Like if I think it's something internal, but it's actually external, or I think it's something external, but it's actually internal. If I start acting on that experience or that 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 intuition, it actually doesn't matter whether I'm applying my force in precisely the right place. Once things start moving again, the nature of stuckness is such that you become unstuck or you start to become unstuck pretty quickly. And so I find the biggest problem for people who are stuck is not identifying the source, but it's moving from not from zero to a hundred, but from zero to one, that very first step is usually the problem. And so as long as you can get them to start applying energy in at least some direction, you see some, some improvement in the situation. Mm -hmm. from, from what I've learned, um, um, doing research for this conversation is that you are an advocate for, um, when you get this, uh, sense of being stuck, that you are not switching into action mode right away, that you need first um, a phase of reflection or a phase of, yeah, maybe finding this source or whatever it is, but not just get into action mode immediately. So um, maybe we can now transition already in the next uh, chapter of this conversation, which is like the, now what to, to do about it. Um, so um, if I will remember correctly, you described that we as humans have this tendency for immediate action. And you say, mm, that might not be the best first step to take. Can you maybe uh, get us through those first couple of steps that um, are practical, effective, etc.? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's exactly right. I think when you when you feel stuck in particular, your instinct is to flail and to thrash about wildly and to do something really fast, to act immediately to change your situation. And you can understand the instinct to do that. It makes a lot of intuitive sense that if you're trapped, the best thing you can do is to act, to move, to escape the situation. But when you do that, when you're when you're not thoughtful about what you're doing and you don't have a strategy, you often further entrench yourself. And so it makes sense to stop for a minute. And the the, the brief pause that you take now 
will often serve you in the very, very long term. So that's that's the first thing I advocate is, is essentially slowing down and dealing with the emotional consequences of being stuck, really getting comfortable with the fact that you are where you are and accepting it before you start moving. I think that's just generally a, a really important psychological truth that no matter what situation you're in, no matter how unpleasant it is, before you start doing anything to change that situation, you need to understand what the situation is. It seems like an important thing to do. Um, and so that goes to your question about understanding the source. I think even if you don't understand the source perfectly, at least understanding, hey, look, I am stuck. This is not a good experience. I don't enjoy this. And now let's talk about what we're going to do next. And so I spend three full chapters of the book. It's thousands and thousands of words just on dealing with the emotional consequences of stuckness, on slowing things down, on helping people sort of turn the temperature down on that experience of stuckness because it's so aversive and so unpleasant for many of them. Um, and I, I give I give lots of lots of case studies and examples. I talk a little bit about uh, Lionel Messi, the footballer. I talk about how he's used this tactic over time, which is I, th I find really fascinating. I'm a huge fan of the game. Yeah, please tell us that story because I also find that fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think whenever you find someone who is extremely, extremely talented, you know, like a, a once in a generation talent, and they use a particular tactic that you don't expect, that's always to me very interesting. And this is the case with Messi. So Messi is is physically gifted as a football player. The way he plays with the ball, the way it sticks to his feet, the way he dribbles, his speed, his intellect, the way he sees the game, he can read the whole pitch in a way that I think very few players can. But one thing that a lot of people don't recognize about Messi is that he's also famously quite anxious. So he's dispositionally anxious. This is just the way he happens to be made. Just as he has all these tremendous physical gifts, he also happens to be a little bit more anxious than perhaps some other football players. And when he was young, some of his coaches said, you know, I don't know that this, this kid is going to be as good as some other players who have his talent because he is so nervous. It's very hard for him to get on the pitch and start playing the game properly. He seems like he's a bit overwhelmed by the game. And so one of his coaches very wisely said to him, you know, you are so talented physically, you're gifted. What we need to do is to figure out a way to, to work with your anxiety. And what they figured out was that there was no way for Messi to fully prepare for the game before it began. He needed to do some of his preparation once the game began. So this coach liberated him to spend the first few minutes of the game essentially not playing. He said, you are so good that if we can sacrifice two or three minutes at the beginning of the game while the game is going on for you to calm down, to look around, to get a sense of what's going on on the field, to see which players are connecting, which ones perhaps have a hidden injury, you know, getting a, an almost bird's eye view of the whole field. If we give you those few minutes to calm down and to do that, that will pay dividends later on. We'll spend the next 85, 90 plus minutes of the game with you at full speed doing incredible things. And so there's, there is really interesting footage of the cameramen who will, will film Messi during the game. He's just standing still. The game's standing or just walking a little bit. <laughs> yeah, he walks a little bit. And sometimes he doesn't even move. He just stands. It's an amazing thing to see. And so until recently, he had never scored a goal in the first two minutes of any game. He had scored from minutes three to minutes 90 plus every minute of the game, but he'd never scored in the first two minutes. But then I wrote the book. I'm from Australia. He just played a game against Australia. He scored in the second minute of the game. So, so maybe I shouldn't have written that, but uh, he still never scored in the first minute of the game because again, I think he's not really fully playing yet. He's getting used to the game and getting unstuck. 
That's a very good story and a nice example of what slowing down can mean or how it can look like. Um, I would assume that this part is already quite a tricky one or a demanding one for many people in our societies. That is, our we have a lot to do. It's uh, we are living in hectic times, uh, etc. Pressure is on. So, um, can you tell us a little bit more about um, how to slow down in the environment that we are in? Um, I would assume that something that could work is trying to declutter your life a little bit, or try to uh, geographically get into another space, slowing down maybe a little bit that way. Uh, what have you learned about what helps to, to slow down? Because it's quite tricky nowadays. Yeah, I, well, I think the origin of speeding up and doing things fast comes from this illusion that there is a finite list of things you need to do. And once you check off everything on the list, you're finished. And you, now things are going to be okay. Now it's good. Now I'm done. You know, humans as a species, we like goals and we like to complete goals. And part of that is about completing things. It's we are completionists. We say, once I start something, I want to finish. I read a book. I want to finish the book. I read a newspaper. I want to finish the newspaper. Whatever tasks we do, we like to finish. Uh, there's a phenomenal book by Oliver Berkman, a friend of mine called 4,000 Weeks, and he writes about this illusion. And he basically says that one of the best things you can do for yourself is to not think of time as as for completing things, as that as though there is like a finite list of things in your life that you want to achieve. That illusion drives you to go faster and to be more hectic and to be more frantic and to be more anxious. And the smartest thing you can do is to say, hey, I don't need to do everything. Let me just do the things I want to do. And I can do them slowly. I can take a little bit more time. I don't need to fight to finish them. It's okay to be on the journey rather than to be at the finish line. And so I think that as a general philosophy is extremely valu valuable for, for slowing down uh, in general, just not seeing everything as, as about a means to an end. And, you know, if you... If you, I think about hiking or running or walking, I, I run almost every day. And I used to dislike running when I saw it as when I started, it was about finishing. You know, you've got to get, get to the end of the run. And as soon as I slowed down and started to enjoy the journey more, each step became more pleasant and I enjoyed it more. That process of running for, say, an hour or sometimes longer than that, the whole thing became much better in every respect. I enjoyed it more. It was healthier for me. My body responded better. And so I think there's something in that for, for other domains as well, way beyond physical activity, that just slowing down is more pleasurable. I think you'll, you're much more likely to be motivated. You'll complete the things you do much more regularly. Um, and also the product, what you produce will be superior because you're taking more time to be thoughtful about what, what output is emerging from you. And so I think there's tremendous value to, to slowing down in general. All right, interesting. Um, it, it sparks another question that I'm really uh, curious about. And now we've been talking about being stuck or getting unstuck. And I think we suggested now in this conversation that it's um, as a person, as an individual being stuck. Um, and I would also be very curious to learn about um, how to handle situation when you are stuck as a team or as an organization. Um, do you think that there are like universal principles or just some things that apply for all these different scenarios, the, the personal stockness, the, the stockness as a team or organization, or are they 
very much different and you need to carefully differentiate? How can you, how do you address that? I think a lot of the ideas can be scaled up. They can be expanded to fit a team as well, but there are some, some unique ideas as well that apply to teams and especially to management and leadership. So one of them that I find very interesting is this question of how you should compose a team of people who are trying to achieve something. And I think there is a version of this for the individual as well, which I'll get to in a minute. But just when we think about composing a team, um, I'm very, very interested in that question. I think it's it's one of the most puzzling, difficult questions in, in the game of leadership. And almost all of us at some point in our lives will work in a situation where we are working with other people. And the question is, who should those people be? Should they be just like us? Should they accentuate our strengths? Should they be different from us? Should they challenge us? How should they be? And, and when I think about putting together a team, there are essentially three different kinds of people or components that you can you can use to assemble a team. There are people who are similar, who have the, a similar background. Maybe maybe you're in a particular industry and you you trained at the same school or you have the same degree or you were trained in the same school of thought or you have the same philosophy or you grew up in the same town or it doesn't really matter what it is, but you overlap. And there's a lot of benefit to that. I think there's there's great benefit in having that kind of synthesis and and accentuation and echoing of ideas. And there's something very warm as humans with, that we feel when we are around other people who who echo our thoughts and ideas. There's something incredibly comforting about having our reality reflected back to us. And so I think it's really important to have people in teams who get along well, who like each other, who have that similarity. But I think when you're stuck, there's a real danger in comp- composing teams that include just those kinds of people, because as as those same people help accentuate your strengths, unfortunately, they also further entrench your negatives. And so if you keep doing things the same way, you're just going to get further and further and further stuck. And so that's a problem. So you have these people, I think they're very important, even on a team that's stuck, but then you need two other kinds of people as well. One of them is, is broadly speaking, a non-redundant actor. Non-redundancy just means that there's no overlap between you or there's very little overlap between you. So in contrast to the first kind of person where there's almost perfect overlap, non-redundant people, they don't have much overlap at all. And the best way I can explain this is being at a university. I've now been a professor at NYU for 14 years. And then before that, I was a graduate student at Princeton for five years. These are both universities that attract people from very, very big and impressive firms that try to recruit students. And one of the things I noticed very early on is that the firms that seem to do the best, they don't come into a department. Like let's say it's a finance company, like a big bank. They don't come in and say, we want your 20 best people in finance. They say, we want the best student in finance, the best student in marketing, the best student in organic chemistry, the best student in French literature, the best student in, you know, they, they bounce around. They just want smart people, but smart people who are very different from each other because you can learn new skills but you can't teach people to have a new background after they've spent 20 years in a particular environment. So that's very, very useful is these non-redundant people. But then there's also a third kind of person that I think the, the best firms and the best organizations and groups use, and that's black sheep. The black sheep in, in you know English parlance is basically just someone who is chosen to be different from the rest of the flock of white sheep, essentially. And so Pixar, the animation studio, uses this approach where they bring people in, they'll all have the same basic idea, but then they'll have one black sheep who has a different philosophy. So a good example of this is some of the films, they really focus a lot on the animation. They want 
a monster to have fur that looks really like fur. The hair looks like hair. The water looks like water. But they'll bring in a black sheep and the black sheep will say, you're all crazy spending time and money on this. No one cares if the hair looks 100% like hair. That's not how animation works. People care about the story. We should spend three times longer on the story because if you lose people in the first five minutes, they're never going to get to see the beautiful animations. And so you have this sort of antagonistic process. It doesn't have to be rude or you don't have to be nasty, but I think that there's something about being challenged that's really important when you're stuck. And I mentioned earlier that uh, this is not just for groups, it's for individuals. The individual version of this is basically to question, it's almost like the five whys. It's to question yourself and to almost play devil's advocate. So if I think something, I should also ask myself, well, what if I'm wrong? How might I be wrong? What's the most likely way that I'm wrong? And then you have a third version of the self that comes in and says, all right, I have the first intuition, and then I have the version that questions that intuition. Which one is more likely to be right? Is there a compromise to be found? And so essentially, you're the. it's like a wisdom of crowds. It's like three separate people playing the game, but they're all inside your own head, which is, I think, a really nice idea. Yeah, uh, I think this idea, if you extrapolate or generalize it a little bit, it also applies to something else that I find is very important. The um, um, switching between the phases of exploration and exploitation. So it reminds me of that as well. So um, do you see that connection as well? If yes, please elaborate. If not, then we can go so someplace else. But I think um, whenever you are in a transition, want to reach something new, um, then it's always good to spend some time in an exploration phase to get all options on the table and then prioritize focus and start exploiting uh, the best options. Do you see that connection as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's a big a big part of the the role of teams is to is to switch between these two modes that you've described, exploration and exploitation. So the the terms essentially come from evolutionary biology. That's their origin. And if you think about it, if you're, you know, a early proto-human, you're running around and you're looking for food, you have two basic strategies. Strategy number one is to say, I don't know where the food is. I don't know where I'm going to find animals or berries or whatever I'm going to find. So what I have to do first is to be omnivorous. I'm going to look everywhere. I'm going to check every bit of terrain. But I, I don't have the time to do that where I look deeply at every little blade of grass and look at every patch and every tree. And I can't do that. I, I won't have the time. So what I have to do first is to just say, I'm going to go shallow. I'm going to go broad. I'm going to look at everything. I'm going to run around and I'm going to run in this direction. Then I'm going to run in that direction. And I'm going to explore as broadly as possible. But eventually you might get signs that, hey, there's a little patch over here where there seem to be these berries and they all seem to grow here. Maybe there's something about the soil or the climate over here. So I should spend more of my time here. Also, there's a cave over here and I heard some animals in there. So there's probably going to be some good food there. So now I don't have to explore anymore. I can't spend my time roving wildly and widely. I've got to say, okay, let me prioritize. And these are the two things I really want to exploit. I want to focus on these two patches of terrain. And obviously you can't do that unless you know what the terrain broadly looks like first. So you have to explore before you can exploit. And that's true about careers and it's true about getting unstuck much more broadly. That there's there's some really fascinating research looking at the course of careers and where you have the best period in your career. Some, pe some people have many good periods, but if you only have one, 
it tends to happen after this period of exploration followed by exploitation. And there are lots of good examples of this. One of the examples is the painter Jackson Pollock, the American painter. He became very, very well known for his drip technique, where he would put paint on the brush and then he would throw the brush and you'd see these big strips of paint. And in the 60s, he became very well known for this. The 50s and 60s, he became well known for it. And he ended up selling these paintings for many millions of dollars. He became very, very famous and well known. But for about six or seven years before he did this, he was exploring. He tried every imaginable technique. He tried a version of impressionism and fauvism and expressionism and cubism. And he tried everything, surrealism briefly. None of them quite worked for him until he found this trip technique by accident one day. He was exploring. And he said, this, this is good. I want to do this. And that's all he did then for five years. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of canvases of drip, drip painting technique. And so he moved from this mode of saying yes to everything, of saying, yes, I want to try everything, to no to everything that wasn't exactly what he was focused on, this big shift. Um, and then one more example, the filmmaker Peter Jackson, who made all the, the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit films, he made these six epic films, these epic fantasy films, these Tolkien films. And um, before he did that, he was making all sorts of strange movies. He was making horror films and he was making drama and all sorts of other stuff. And it went nowhere. No one was interested. But he learned things from doing that that made him a better filmmaker when it came to exploiting this fantasy genre. And so there's something really useful there about knowing when to when to explore, when to exploit, and when to switch between the two. Absolutely. And exactly this timing, um, this question of timing, when to do the switch, I find particularly interesting and, and fascinating. So on the one hand, you could say, well, just listen to the market. And when the market, market feedback is good, then we know we have found something and let's now let's exploit uh, that. Maybe in, I don't, I'm not um, very familiar with the, the, the art history of Mr. Pollock, but here, um, was it market feedback that helped him making this decision of now I'm now I have found something now let's exploit that or was it uh, the artist like the, the visionary thing of just a feeling that this is the right thing? What have you learned in in your work about finding this right moment or what are maybe the the, the variables the KPIs to look for to to make a good decision here when to switch? Yeah, so it's it's a question the KPIs that matter really are a function of of what you're trying to achieve. So if you're an artist and what you're looking for is is commercial success, then to some extent you're paying attention to the marketplace and perhaps you're experimenting by by having exhibitions and seeing what sells. You know, you have an exhibition with 12 different styles and this one sells better, so this is what I'm going to exploit. Or perhaps it's just about passion. Maybe you're intrinsically driven to be an artist because this is your calling in life, this is your passion. Maybe you already have some money from something else. Maybe you have another job and this is just something you do for, for you know, personal benefit. Well, then it's going to be about what makes you feel happy. What makes you want to run to the canvas when you wake up in the morning and be creative? And for Pollock, it was a combination. He loved this form of art. He loved how physical it was. He loved that it was big. The canvases were massive because some of the works he was doing before that were very intricate. But for his personality, he was a very physical person. Being able to throw the brush around was really, really attractive. And so he liked that about it. So the, the market certainly responded to what he was doing, but but very often the market lags. It takes a, a while to know what the market's going to say about a particular form of art. And if you're if you're lucky, 
you hit on something before it's popular because once it's popular, then the, the marketplace is swamped. And that's that was part of the problem for Pollock. He was trying styles that had gone out of fashion 20 years ago. You know, cubism was big much earlier than when he was painting, and yet he was trying cubism again. And people were saying, well, you know, this has been done. I don't think this is going to be for you. So it, it, it is a question of what you're trying to achieve. And uh, I think all of these things are important to attend to. One other thing that's really important to think about when you're exploring and exploiting is um, sometimes the decision of when to jump from explore to exploit should be left up to something external. And what I mean by that is I, I talk to students at, at NYU where I teach, and sometimes I talk to them when they're freshmen, that's their first year of college. And I say to them, this is your period to explore. You have four years in college. It should be the most exploratory period for you because this is when you when you learn a lot of what you're going to learn. You may think that you keep learning all through your life, and to some extent you do, but here learning is something that you're doing. It's your bread and butter every day. And so you, it's your choice. If you want to go sit in on a lecture, go sit in on a lecture. If you want to try a different major, try a different major. This is your chance. Say yes to everything. If you get invited to some club, go to the club. Maybe you won't like it, but you've lost only an hour or two but you'll, you would never know that could be the thing that ends up driving your life. And one of the things I do is I show them the 10 email, the, sorry, the four emails over the last 15 years that changed my life where I, my instinct was to say no to them. They had opportunities inside them. And I was like, I don't know, but I said, yes, because I was exploring. One of them led to the book writing that I do now. One of them led to the speaking career that I have and so on. Um, but I mentioned that this external force that shifts you from explore to exploit, eventually you're going to graduate from college. Once you've had that four years of exploration, that's a natural point to say, okay, what have I learned during these four years? Now let's exploit. And so I think you can also leave it up to time. I hope you are enjoying this episode so far. If you like what you hear, why not collaborate with Sparker on your next business event? Sparker drives strategy and innovation workshops forward as a goal-oriented facilitator. And Sparker can also contribute to your next high-caliber conference as moderator or speaker. If you want to learn more, visit www.sparker.ch moderation. you find the link in the description of this episode. And now back to the rich conversation of this Sparker podcast. It's good that you mention um, also your own stories or your own this transition moments of um, uh, maybe life quakes. Maybe they were life quakes. I don't know. Um, but I would also be curious just to, again, make it also very practical. Um, writing a book, in your case, that's also not an easy process. It's, um, it's a very long process, can be daunting. Uh, so I would... Uh, uh, I would bet a lot that also you experienced uh, this uh, sensation of being stuck while writing the book. Um, and this also goes then back to one other element that you mention uh, can lead to starkness is this um, long process with long middle uh, parts. The beginning might be um, enthusiastic and the end is uh, motivating because you can see the finish line on the horizon, but the, the biggest part is the middle. Uh, and I would assume this is the same for you when writing a book. Um, what have you learned about 
um, overcoming this grind of getting through this annoying middle part. And I think this can be generalized for all sorts of projects, not just um, creating um, a book, writing a book or creative um, things um, of other examples, just projects as a whole. Um, what have you learned um, about getting unstuck from writing the book? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And I, you know, I've written three books and there was a period for each one of the books, all three of them, where I thought I wasn't going to finish. There were days when I was convinced this was it and I was going to have to tell the publisher, this is not going to work out. I can't do it. It's not going to happen. Not everyone goes through that, but a lot of writers do. <laughs> a lot of them do when they're writing books. You know, there are these periods of despair. And then they're sometimes followed by periods of triumph where you feel like this is actually going somewhere. I like where this is going. It's a very emotional experience writing a book and it goes on for a long time. And as you said, these extended goals have this very big lull in the middle, this very big period where you can't see where you began and you can't see where you're ending. And you just feel like you're on a ship in the middle of the ocean and all you see is horizon in every direction. And it's so demotivating. And so you need to trick yourself to feel that that's not true, that actually you're not just stuck in the middle of the ocean, that that there is something to strive for. So one of the most useful things that I've seen people do and that I do as well is it's kind of obvious with a book because you have the number of words, you have the subjective feedback. But if you're trying to write a book and it's supposed to be 100,000 words, the idea of writing 100,000 words is totally overwhelming. But the idea of saying okay, but let me break that into 12 chapters of roughly seven or 8,000 words plus the intro and the outro. That's more doable. 8,000 words is more doable, but even 8,000 words is a lot of words. That's also too long. So how do you break it down further? Well, one thing you can do is you could draw up a little chart. You can just draw with a ruler and pen and you have a hundred little boxes. And every time you write a thousand words, you color in one of the boxes. So it's 10, 10 by 10. It's a little grid. And it's surprising that that would have any effect, but what it does is it takes the the big goal and it, it's this is called narrow bracketing. It's where you put brackets around the goal more narrowly. So you take a big goal that has these very wide brackets that are far apart, 100,000 words, and you say, well, let's, let's make it bite-size. We'll have 100 little narrow brackets, each bracketing 1,000 a, a words. Now, 1,000 words is manageable. Almost every day when I'm writing, I'll write a thousand words. And so that it feels instead of like a goal that goes for 18 months, it'll be a goal that goes for a single day. Now that's motivating. And what you do is you essentially eradicate the middle. There's no time to have a middle if the goal is that small. It's still meaningful, but it's small. And then what does that mean? What do you do? How do you make this more real? There has to be something at the end of that thousand words. It's not just like you write a thousand words, you color in the box, and then you just keep writing. You have to mark it somehow. It needs to be a milestone. And so you have to figure out what is something that you like doing that is a small reward that hopefully is also not, not bad for you, something that's good for you that further energizes you and makes you happier and healthier and do that thing. For me, it was to go to the beach. I would go and sit by the beach and look out at the, at the water, which is nearby where I live. That was my reward. I'd say, okay, I, I, get, I get to spend an hour by the beach now and I can maybe go for a run or whatever it is that's important. So I think that narrow bracketing is really useful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sounds interesting. And it uh, sounds familiar to something that I also do when processes become too too long or projects become too long. Uh, try to get quick wins, uh, milestones that um, uh, give a motivating uh, feedback. Um, 
But then also, again, it's kind of unavoidable that we have these moments of um, uh, frustration, anxiety, or just there's, to being stuck, there's a, a, a enormous emotional um, level to it or an emotional component to it. And what have you learned um, about navigating the emotional space of um, getting unstuck? We, we, we've touched on it multiple times now with um, how being stuck feels or that you create uh, milestones that are rewarding. So there's always this emotional component, but maybe we can uh, zoom in on that topic a little bit. And can you tell us more about how to navigate the emotional space? Yeah. So one of the insights that I've found very useful over my own life is uh, I, I'm not afraid of flying anymore. I used to be very afla- afraid of flying, um, especially when there was turbulence on the plane. And I had a, a psychologist who said to me once, you know, when you think of it, this this fear you have, you know, it's not rational. There's nothing to be afraid of. But you can think of fear as a kind of presence, a physical presence, like a little person that sits next to you. So when you're on the plane, I always sit in the aisle seat. You imagine that in the aisle next to you, as the turbulence gets bigger, this little physical presence gets bigger as well. It's just a little person. It can be, you know, just whatever person you think of. For me, it was just this kind of little little man who'd sit next to me and he would get bigger and he would get smaller depending on how much fear I was experiencing. There was something really comforting to having this physical presence represent the fear I was enduring. Because one of the things you can do is if your fear is, is personified, you can shrink that personification and make it grow again. You learn how to control it. So one thing that would happen is the turbulence might get very bad on a flight. And I would look at the guy who was next to me in my head and I'd say, well, look, he's very big right now, but I'm just going to shrink him down. He can fit in my pocket. And I would spend so much time turning the temperature down on my fear that I would focus more on this little figment of my imagination than on the turbulence itself. And I always calmed down. It was a very, very effective technique for me. Now, that doesn't work for everything. It's not always fear that makes you feel stuck. But I think this idea of turning up and down the volume on your emotions is a very, very powerful thing that a lot of people can learn to do. Uh, And you can do that as a leader, and you can also do that as someone who's experiencing the emotions directly. But I think the leadership examples are really vivid, and I'll I'll share one with you from the book that I find really fascinating. Um, This is a little bit like the Lionel Messi example because Messi's coach told him to slow things down. This is a similar case. This one focuses on music, though, on jazz. The, uh, the the jazz pianist Herbie Hancock, when he was first playing with Miles Davis's band, Miles Davis, the great trumpet jazz trumpet player, uh, he went and he auditioned with Miles Davis's band. And in the room at Miles's house were just a whole lot of different musicians who were the very best jazz musicians of their age, really phenomenal, phenomenal musicians. And Hancock walked in and he was absolutely overwhelmed. And Miles Davis himself had this reputation for being very exacting. He knew exactly what he wanted from his musicians. They didn't always know. So you had to guess. You had to figure out what Miles was looking for. And if you didn't do what he wanted, he would sometimes shout at you on stage. It was very embarrassing. He wasn't a very gentle leader, but but he often coaxed the very best music out of people. And um, Hancock describes this day when he he started playing with the, the band and auditioning, and he was totally overwhelmed and nervous, and they started playing. And after about five minutes, Davis took his trumpet and he threw it on the sofa, and he went upstairs, and they didn't see him for three days. So they practiced for three days on and off. And Hancock said, 
you know, I knew I must have bombed the audition. I obviously didn't get the part, but I wanted to enjoy myself. I started to relax. I realized I'd, I had this limited opportunity to play with these great musicians. And then at the end of the third day, just as they were wrapping up, Davis came down the stairs again, picked up his trumpet and started playing with the band and they played some beautiful music. And at the end of the day, Davis went over to Hancock and he said, I like what I've been hearing. I'd like you to join the band. Next week, you're going to play with us. And Hancock said to him, I don't understand. After five minutes, you threw your trumpet down and you went upstairs. I thought I'd bombed the audition. And Davis said, no, I, my job, my job is not to scare you. My job is to get the very best music out of you. And during an audition, I want to know what you've got. And if you're terrified of me, you're not going to play properly. So I went upstairs and I listened through the intercom. I could hear everything, but I knew that if I wasn't in the room, I could turn down the temperature and let you really shine. And you did. Now I want you to play with us. And there are a lot of musicians who played with Davis over the years who said the same thing, that when they first started playing with him, they were terrified and he would leave the room. And I think that's that's the role of a leader is to is to figure out the levers you have to turn up and turn down that experience of of uh, of emotional intensity that your you, people around you are, are, are enduring, are dealing with, to figure out how to get the best from them. Um, so that's to me, is a key part of leadership. But also, as I said, with this little man that was getting bigger and smaller on the plane, you can do this to some extent to yourself or with yourself as you turn down the temperature as things get too intense for you as well. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And also thanks for bringing up the, the role of leadership, because that's also something that I want uh, to address um, in this conversation. I absolutely want to, to get into that topic as well, um, because as leaders, you, you now sh shared with that story already as, uh, as part of being a leader, you have to also care for others and you have to some extent also the responsibility to um, help somebody else uh, getting unstuck again, or maybe helping to avoid that somebody gets into that space of being stuck. Um, of course, this can be as a leader in in the business, but it can also be as a parent or just in general. We sometimes, as humans, uh, should help somebody else or are in a situation where we want to help somebody else. And here I find fascinating this question of... Um, um, on the one hand, you want to be supportive, um, maybe give time, give space, be patient on the one hand. But on the other hand, we also talked about how important it is to, to get into a mode of action. At some point in time, you need to, to get going. You need to start experimenting. And there you might need to be pushy uh, or enforce something, uh, push somebody out of the comfort zone, for example. Uh, what have you learned about um, the ways that we can be supportive for others uh, when they are stuck or need to get unstuck? Yeah, it's a very good question. And I think a very important one. It's I started thinking about this um, approach. This was a long time ago. I was writing my last book before this one, um, which was in English, it was irresistible. I think I'm going to try and pronounce it in German. I think it was unwiderstehlich or something like that. Exactly. Unwiderstehlich. Genau. Yeah, that's right. So the book was about screens and how we spend so much time on screens and how how difficult it is for us to resist technology in in the modern age and one of the techniques i talked about for for dealing with this is known as motivational interviewing now motivational interviewing the first idea with motivational interviewing is that it doesn't presume to know what you're trying to get out of your experience with a therapist 
So when you come in to see the therapist who's using this approach, the first thing they ask you is, what is it? Where are you now? Like, how much would you like to change your life? So let's say you come in and you say, I'm stuck. I'm spending eight hours a day on my phone and I want to, I'm stuck. This doesn't feel good. The first question in motivational interviewing is not to assume that you want to change that. It's to say, are you ready to make a change? What is it that you want? What are you looking for? What can I do to help you? Because if we're not on the same page, if we can't agree that we're trying to achieve the same end, then we're going to be fighting each other. And that's, as far as leadership goes, that's a terrible way to to, to be, is to fighting against the people you're trying to lead. And so this first step, I think, is really important. And it's a step that we often skip over, which is to say, what are we all trying to achieve? And is it the same thing? Now, when you're helping someone, I think that motivational interviewing technique is really valuable. It's to go to someone and say, hey, what are you experiencing? And if they say, I'm stuck, the next question is, well, what what do you what would you like? What would be the best case scenario here? What do we what can we together try to do to help you achieve? Is there a goalpost? Is there something where you could put a flag in the ground and say, this is something I would consider to be a victory? Because if we both know that, then we can point ourselves in the same direction and move together in that direction. Instead of, you know, like sometimes I, I find this happens a lot with, with when you're talking to children or when you're talking to your spouse or your partner or to a friend you're not exactly sure. You sort of assume that they want the same thing you want. But if you don't confirm it, you're never going to get anywhere. You're pushing and pulling in opposite directions. Uh, So I think that's always a really good place to start. And then once you've established that, then you can start working through the process of saying, let's talk strategy. Now that we both know we're pointing in this direction, what's the best thing we can do? And in fact, there's a big chunk of the book. There are three sections, three chapters on, uh, on the cognitive strategies we can use to get unstuck. And then the actions is a whole second a separate section on the actions we can take. So I think um, a big part of your role as the kind of wing person who helps this person along through their process of stuckness is to make sure that you know what they're looking to do and then to try to help them. You you are the sort of non-emotional version of them, right? If they're all caught up in the emotion of it all, you should be the cognitive part that comes in, bolts on and says, hey, let me do the heavy loading load of the thinking for you as you grapple with the emotional consequence of being stuck and we will we'll move in the right direction together. Well, what I like a, a lot from what I believe I, you are saying is um, it's identifying the, the shared goal, but then also to, um, to get the buy-in from everybody involved. Yes, we want change. So that's kind of like a, a landmark or like a commitment that everybody has to make um, before you start anything. So you need, did I understand you correctly there? Yeah, I like that way. The way you put it was was much more succinct and I like it very much that that essentially it is the buy-in, right? It is that we all we all have the same idea. Sometimes if you're a leader in a team, you can't give everyone the option to say, I'm not interested. You need everyone to be interested and you need to show them that this is the thing that we're all doing. But if you can do it gently where they buy in, where they say, this is what we're all doing, then that, that's a very useful place to begin. Yeah, I, my, my assumption is that when um, you start this process of getting unstuck, getting to a, a better place, then it's, I guess, either the option of we stay within the, the f- framework or setting that we have, but we want to improve something, or we need to... Um, leave the system or change the system entirely and build something new. It's kind of like stay, improve, or go away and start something new. Um, just uh, briefly, is that like the basic two options that we have when getting unstuck, or is there more to it? 
I, I think it is, and I think it it maps on very well to the explore exploit distinction, or, or or to experimentalism, which is another thing that I talk about in the book. That you essentially have two choices at any moment in time when things aren't going perfectly. You can either improve what what's going going well about the thing that you're doing, or what's going not so well, and to make it better. And so you say, here's the structure, here's the framework, here's the skeleton. I don't want to change that. I want to just improve the bits that are attached to it. And so I'm going to make some small tweaks and we're going to make the best of what we can do. And that's really exploitation. That's trying to make the best of what you have in front of you. The alternative is to say, I'm going to question everything. I'm going to start from scratch. Maybe some of the bits will end up surviving that process. But if I'm going to become an experimentalist, I want to think about everything as open to to reinterpretation and to change. And you see, when you see this happening, sometimes it's the most dramatic examples of moving forward in any area, whether it's athletics, some athletic technique, um, or whether it's the way a business works. You often see very, very successful businesses that really disrupt the market doing something like that, where they come in and they say, everyone assumes this is the way it's done. We're going to do it a different way. And it's so much better because they've questioned something that's fundamental to the way the business is done. Uh, my favorite example of it, though, is another athletic example. This is the uh, American swimmer, Dave Burkoff, who in the 1980s, he was swimming backstroke. And his coach said to him, uh, you know, you you have to train, you have to be up at 4am every day, it's going to be hours and hours in the pool. And Burkoff said, I don't want to train, I don't want to train hours and hours in the pool. And his coach said, do you want to be an Olympian? Speaking of buy-in, Burkoff said, yes, I do. His coach said, well, there's, we have to figure out a way to make it so that you you want to train. And so what Burkhoff did was he said to his coach, I, I'm happy to train, but at the end of every training period, I want you to give me an hour to experiment. I want to try new things. And his coach loved that idea. And he said, let's do that. Let's experiment together. Let's question everything. And what they learned together was that when you swim the backstroke, when you push off the wall at the beginning of the swim, the first thing everyone does is they pop up out of the water. They get their first breath because you're underwater and your body is crying out for oxygen. It's exhausting to push back off the wall like that and to use all that energy. And so for decades and decades, as long as anyone had been swimming the backstroke, they had been under the water, they'd been popping up about 10 meters after they started the race, and then they'd start swimming the backstroke the usual way. But what Burkhoff realized was that the longer he could train his body to stay underwater, the faster he swam, because you swim much faster when there's no friction at the surface of the water. If your whole body is underwater, you swim about 80% faster. And so he kept pushing the envelope and he trained his body to stay underwater for 50, almost 50 meters, almost the full length of the Olympic pool. And he kept this a secret for a while. And then one day he went to the US Olympic trials and he broke the world record. And people were looking at him saying, what is he doing? He's not coming up out of the water. He's still swimming fully underwater. He was miles ahead, meters and meters ahead of the other swimmers. And so this became known as the Burkhoff blastoff. And eventually other swimmers learned it as well. But in the process, Burkhoff broke multiple world records and won two Olympic gold medals at two Olympic Games, 1988 in Seoul and 1992 in Barcelona, all from questioning a very fundamental principle of the sport. Yeah. And uh, you see these examples that are totally fascinating when people say, let's throw everything out, start from scratch, but you have to be willing to do that. Yeah, it's really like this paradigm shift where you say, I I want to break out of the local maximum, the local maxima, and try to reach the, the global maxima and, and really question what variable do you do I want to optimize to get the most performance, etc. 
Really like that example. Very nice. Something that came to my mind just from uh, the previous couple of minutes is that even though um, nobody enjoys being stuck, I would assume, there, I guess, is nevertheless almost always some sort of sacrifice involved when you want to get unstuck in the sense of, for example, you, you sense that something needs to change, but for something to be able to change, you maybe need to create the space and time, the, the decluttering of, of your life first so that the new can emerge. And that usually means letting go of something, maybe letting go of something that gave you security, be it financial security or a habit that gave you security. So what have you learned about the, the relationship between sacrifice and getting unstuck? Is that like um, a necessary price to pay? I think it is sometimes. Uh, sometimes you have to give something up and you can't move on. But I think a lot of the time we overestimate how much you have to give up to make change and to get unstuck. And and what happens most often is we we tend to think that a lot of changes are irrevocable, that once they've been made, they can't be undone. But there are very few changes in this world, very few shifts that really are truly irrevocable. And there are certainly some things, you know, if you if you have a child, that's your child forever. That's that's an irrevocable change. But a change in career or a change in career trajectory or trying a new technique in a creative pursuit or, you know, there are lots of different things that we do that can unstick us, but I think a lot of them can be undone. And we often think that things can't be undone when they've been changed. And I think one of the most useful things to do is to is to explore in your mind the the, the consequences of things that you do more deeply than I think we naturally do. So usually you'll ask yourself like, well, what if I change jobs? Then then I have to leave this job behind and that's terrible. And then you're like, is it terrible? Let's really explore this. Let's think about this. How could you do this? What would it look like? What's the worst case scenario? What's the best case scenario? What's the most likely scenario? Let's sketch out all the options. What's the full menu of, of the range of outcomes from worst to best? And how likely is each outcome? Even if you don't and have also what is the cost of doing nothing? That's and also what is the cost of doing nothing? Yeah, absolutely. I like that one as well, right? So that's 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 a choice too. The omission, not just to act, but to omit and not to act is also a choice. And so that should be factored in as one of the options. And you should put slot that in among all the others for for from best to worst. Maybe omission is one of the worst outcomes that you could have as well. So I, I think I think you're right that there is some sacrifice in acting. You always have the opportunity cost. You give something up for something new. But very often, if it doesn't work out, you can go back. It's not as hard to go back as we think it is. Yeah, most changes are not that fatal or irreversible or something like that. So doing like a, a risk mitigation exercise and you realize that, hey, it, it can be changed if it doesn't work out. Yeah. And I think we it's, often need that help to, especially if you're anxious about the change, you need to feel like you can dip your toes in the water before you dive in all the way. And so I think that's useful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And since um, getting stuck is like this, I would say, inevitable part of the human experience and nobody likes uh, experiencing it, um, are there also like some uh, good principles, tools, methods to uh, tactics that help you anticipate or avoid being stuck? I mean, for sure, every once in a while you just 
get there, but you might be able to minimize a bit how often that happens or how regularly. Um, is there something that uh, you can share how we can be proactive or good habits, exercises um, that we can do on a daily basis, monthly basis, yearly basis, whatever it is, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so there are there are different kinds of stuckness, obviously, as we've discussed, and some stuck some experiences of being stuck are they visit they're visited upon us very suddenly, and there's not much we can do about them, and there's no way to anticipate them. And so, with those, you just need to be ready to to react to them when they happen, and to assume that they're going to happen at some level. That that, by the way, is I think the very first thing that. Uh, especially in the West, my understanding from a lot of the research I've done is that in the West, we tend to be blindsided or surprised by change. In the East, in places like Japan, China, South Korea, they tend to anticipate change much more readily than we do in the West. Now, that there's some variance to that even within the West. But in general, we sort of assume that the way things are now is how they're going to be, and we're not very good at anticipating change. So to be nimble in the face of change is useful. To say to yourself, I like where things are, or even if you don't like where things are, I know things are going to change. And when they do, I'm going to be ready. I'm going to accept that like every other human who's ever lived, I'm going to need to make some changes in response to that. It's not a personal affront. This is not a personal experience. I shouldn't feel alone or isolated. This is a universal experience. Everyone has to go through this. Now, the question of the kind that you can anticipate, those are the ones you can't anticipate, but there are kinds that you can. For example, we talked about the plateau effect. That is almost inevitable. So if I'm doing something, let's say, you know, I, I, I like to run. Let's say I have a goal. I want to run a 5K, five-kilometer race in under, say, 20 minutes. And I keep training. I start at 25 minutes, and then I run it in 24, and then in 23. I know that there is a point. And it might be before I hit 20 minutes. It might be after. There's a point where that training technique that I've been using is going to not work so well for me. It's just going to become less effective. I'm going to need to do something different. So how do I anticipate it? Well, one thing I do is I say, I'm going to alternate between two training approaches. One week, I'll use training approach A. The next week, I use training approach B, and I keep switching between them. And so I'm already anticipating the plateau before it arrives. And the way I'm dealing with it is I'm sort of tricking my body by hitting it with two different approaches. Same thing with lifting weights. If you if you do three sets of 10 bicep curls for 10 years, I promise you at the 10th year, it's going to be less effective than in the first year. So you've got to do some something different, different set of exercises, lighter weights, more reps, heavier weights, fewer reps, something's got to change. And so I think using using the knowledge you have, hopefully, you know, reading a book like this is supposed to do that. It's supposed to say to you, here are the things to look out for. And if you if you know those things are coming, or they're very likely to come, you can anticipate them, you can prepare for them. And as soon as you see the sign of the plateau approaching, you know, my gains are slowing down. I'm not learning as many words. I was learning a hundred words a day. Now I'm only learning 50 words a day. It's time then when the writing's on the wall to make a shift before you get stuck as you start to slow down. Because sometimes being stuck is not binary. It's about you know going full speed ahead, being stuck, and then in between, there's a sort of slowing down. And once you notice that deceleration, that's the time to change things. And this slowing down could be anything like slowing down in progress you make in physical training, slowing down in new customers that you generate with a product, or is that like transferable to all sorts of different categories, the slowing down effect? Absolutely. And I think we're often in denial when the slowdown happens. 
So if I think about customer acquisition in a business, or I think about revenue generation or sales or profit, it doesn't matter what the KPI is. It doesn't matter what you care about. Often when you see something that looks like a bit of a red flag, maybe it's a it's it's not terrible, but it's starting to trend in the wrong the wrong direction. We say to ourselves, well, let's just wait and see. Let's see what happens. You know, maybe it'll change. Maybe it'll turn around. Maybe it's just a blip. Maybe it's temporary. Whatever. You tell yourself stories about why this is not so bad. And we do that because it's self-protective. It feels better to do that than to say disaster is around the corner. But if instead of that instinct, you say, well, disaster may not be around the corner, but if nothing else, I should get everything in order. I should assume that this is not the best thing. And if I'm pleasantly surprised, that's great. But if suddenly my my customer acquisition has dropped, my profit has dropped, my revenues dropped, my muscular gains have dropped, whatever it is, I should start today when I first see that preparing for what happens when the drop becomes so significant that it hampers whatever the activity is, when it's a real problem. And so that by the time you are approaching getting stuck, you already have the full strategy in place for getting unstuck even before you get there. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good way to live to the extent possible. Now, you can't control everything, but there is a lot that you can control if you're looking out for it. Mm-hmm. To me, that sounds like, um, now let's again apply it to a business context. If you see some trends manifesting, even if they might be just small ones or young trends, it's still a good option to say, okay, what if this trend accelerates or continues? In what scenarios do we run into? How can we prepare for those scenarios? Um, is that a fair summary of what you have described? Yeah, and I think a really good way to, to, to illustrate it vividly is to think about something like ChatGPT or generative AI. If you think about this, this development, we are about eight months into the era of ChatGPT. So this generative AI era that we are now inhabiting is only eight months old. It's incredibly new. Every day there are new tools and techniques and platforms available. To try to keep up with them is borderline impossible. I mean, it's really overwhelming for us as humans to to stay on top of that much new information. It's very, very exciting if you look at it that way, but it's also a lot. So the question is, what is the best way for any company or individual to deal with this sudden new technology that is only eight months old? And I think, I mean, you look at businesses, they all, they're all dealing with it differently. Some of them already have a full task force of people who are exclusively, their only job is to work out how generative AI is going to be good for the business. How can we use it? What are the advantages? What are the opportunities? What are the potential costs? How are we going to develop a competitive advantage over our competitors? How are we going to stay ahead of the field and so on? That is obviously the right way to go here. Right. This is, this is having huge ripple effects. It's changing every aspect of almost every business, or at least we think it might. And so in anticipation of those changes, you don't want to be left behind. You don't want to get to the point where suddenly all these businesses are a year or two or three ahead of you. Cause this is a ma- the major potential sticking point. Now is the time to act. Now here's the, the one wrinkle, the one tweak that I would suggest is. If you think about a new technology like this, there are people who are innovators who the day the technology comes out, they're spending hours and hours and hours, and they're trying to be the first, the very first to understand it. That's not where I like to be. I like to let those people do that. And in the world of product adoption, we talk about innovators followed by early adopters. I like to be an early adopter. So I like to give the 2% of the very keenest part of the market the chance to make the early mistakes, the really big ones. And then I'll come in on the back of that and say, well, 
I want to be in early, but I don't want to be in that early. So I think there's a kind of sweet spot there, especially for businesses, where you're not making huge mistakes. You're letting someone else who's really interested in the new technology do that, and then you come in after that as the sort of the next stage of uh, of interaction. Yeah, it just uh, goes back to your story with um, with the painter Pollock, who um, uh, was an early adopter or pioneer with his brush strokes. Um, so. Um, there's a nice parallel there. Um, we, we could continue talking for, for quite a while. I'm looking at the time and I want to respect yours. So maybe we come to a wrap up um, very soon. Um, something that uh, interests me also is um, the, the very basic conception of being stuck as something uncomfortable, something we don't want to be. That's was the main part of our conversation. Now, how can we fix that undesirable state? Um, but then if we look at, um, I, I enjoy watching movies, uh, looking at good stories, and I'm fascinated by storytelling, how it's like something universal, apparently, with all the archetypes um, uh, in storytelling. And there's no good story uh, without the struggle especially in this archetypical hero story, there always has to be this struggle and the rebirth after the struggle and all of that. So in the big picture of a, of a good life, of a rich life that is worth living, remembering, uh, I would argue the struggle is part of that, as long as you get out of it okay. Um, in that sense, how would you uh, position this experience of being stuck in uh, in the story of our lives? Is it, um, is it these struggles who make us who we are, these transition points, these life quakes? How, how do you think about that? I, yeah, I think they do. I think what they do is they force us to grow and no growth happens without struggle. It's very, very hard to grow without a struggle. Um, if you think about learning new skills, if you think about developing resilience and becoming a stronger person and becoming a more rich, well-rounded person and developing experience, all of that comes from struggle. You know, when you talk to, to entrepreneurs who are 60, 70, 80 years old, people like Warren Buffett in their 90s, you say to them, tell me, how did you become so good at what you do? None of them say it was that tranquil period for 20 years in the middle where nothing happened. They all talk about the struggle. It's the the periods of great struggle. It was whether it's an economic crash or whether it was a problem for their individual firm or whether it was some major life quake. It doesn't matter what it was. It was something that happened that forced them to do things differently and to learn and acquire new skills. And so I think that's true for all of us, that the meaning we derive in life comes from that growth and that growth comes from difficulty, from hardship. I talk in the book about a concept that I've been studying called hardship inoculation. And it's a little bit like we have, you know, vaccines for diseases, for viruses, um, but you can also have a vaccine against hardship, which is to experience small doses of hardship when you're young. Um, I'm, I'm not suggesting children should go through trauma, but if you take a child and you don't ever have that child take the dishes from the table to the sink, or you don't tell the child that every month you or every week you can get some pocket money I'll give you a few dollars, but you have to do some chores or whatever. You go, you just teach them, you know, some things that they don't want to do, they need to do, and then there'll be some good thing that comes at the end of it. That makes them a much more resilient teenager and then adolescent and then college student and then adult. 
And I think that's true for the rest of us in in our lives. That 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 hardship, those small doses of hardship, are really important. And so you can cultivate them. You can expose yourself to little bits of challenge. Um, and there's there's a lot of evidence for this. I, one of the studies that we ran was we looked at about 20 years of data on the college basketball competition in the United States, the NCAA basketball, and we found that the teams that happened to be drawn randomly to play more difficult opposition at the beginning of the season during the preseason, they tended to do much better during the season, all else being equal. So you control all the other factors that might be explaining performance. It seems that the hardship they endured during that preseason predicted that they would do better in the season itself during the competition. And I think there's a metaphor there for life, which is that the best version of you, the strongest, most resilient, most competent version of you comes through the fire of whatever challenges you have before. It's um, a very nice, beautiful way, I would say, to wrap up this conversation. And uh, I can say this conversation was not at all a dose of hardship. It was a dose of uh, pleasure, of insight. It was um, uh, great spending time with you and tapping into your, your knowledge in all, to, all the research you did and put in this book. Um, so I recommend everybody to, to have a look at it, to, to dig deep in the insights that you gathered uh, in your work. And it was uh, great spending time with you, Adam. Thank you. You too, Christian. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Adam for sharing his insights from his extensive research. I recommend you take a look at Adam's work wherever you get your precious books and look for his works like Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked, or his latest work, Anatomy of a Breakthrough, How to Get Unstuck When It Matters Most. For more exciting conversations with leading minds in leadership, innovation and technology, please consider subscribing to the Sparker podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your favorite shows. And if you like this episode, please leave a good rating for the show. That really helps us out. I'm looking forward to welcoming you back to another episode soon, where I'll uncover the mindsets, tactics and insights of exceptional people and organizations to enable you, the change makers. And don't forget to check out the International Retail Summit at the Gottlieb Dutweiler Institute in Zurich on September 7th, where you can meet Adam and myself in person. It was a great pleasure having you with me this episode. I wish you all a great day and talk to you soon.